0: Welcome to the podcast, From Crisis to Connection. I'm Jeff Stewart, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, and I'll be bringing the professional perspective.
1: I'm Jody Stewart, unlicensed wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and neighbor, and I'll be bringing the regular, everyday perspective.
0: We are all about relationship recovery, and we'll tackle tough topics like infidelity, abuse, addiction, pornography, and betrayal trauma.
1: We also focus on helping you build stronger connections in your most important relationships. So, thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here.
0: We're excited today to bring to you a guest who has written a really compelling book on the history of addiction, something that I personally have never thought a lot about. Right. And this has been such an engaging thing to think about and talk about. And we're excited to have him on here. His name is. Dr. Carl Eric Fisher and mm-hmm. uh, Jody, you want to introduce yeah, a little more? Yeah, about I'll him? tell you
1: a little bit about him. He is an addiction physician, bioethicist, <laughs> and also person in recovery. So he has some real personal experience to bring to this great conversation. He is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, and also maintains a private psychiatry practice focused on addiction. And excitingly, he is the author of. The nonfiction book, The Urge Our History of Addiction. And we're going to spend some time talking about that concept and how it affects the way we treat addiction today and think about it. Okay, a few more things. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Nautilus, Slate, Scientific American Mind, and other places as well. He is also the host of a podcast called Flourishing After Addiction, which some of you might find really interesting and helpful. It's just a deep dive interview series exploring addiction and recovery. So more along the same lines there. And Dr. Fisher lives between Brooklyn, New York and Lisbon, Portugal with his partner and son. So welcome, Carl. We are just thrilled to have you with us today.
2: Thanks so much for
0: having me. It's good to meet. Well, let's dive right in. I yes. want to talk about your book, first of all, and then I've got, we've got 500 other questions and we'll uh, right. see what we can make time for. <laughs> try to
1: pare it down. <laughs> um,
0: but tell us about The Urge. Tell us about um, what interests you do in writing about the history of addiction. I mean, what an interesting topic to look mm-hmm. backward and understand where this even came from.
2: Yeah. What interested me was my own journey. I was in early recovery around the time I settled on the topic. I had had a major problem with alcohol and stimulants during my medical training at Columbia University. And once I was out of rehab and relatively settled and felt pretty stable, I I realized I still had questions about what had happened to me. How do I make sense of what I had gone through? And I really love medicine and science. And it's not an anti-medicine or anti-science book at all. But mm-hmm. I found that a lot of the scientific and academic discussions of addiction were really eh, just sort of partisan and divided and people speaking past each other and only seizing on mm. one small piece of the puzzle. And in the process of reading about addiction, I realized that the history and philosophy and the culture, the way we understand addiction, how we make sense of free will, self-control, morals, ethics, values, all of those things really matter a great deal to substance use problems, and other forms of addictive behavior. And so, I, I wanted to understand those dimensions. And I found a lot of you know, very, very specific academic scholarship. Someone might study, say, the history of alcoholism in Pittsburgh from 1880 to 1920. And it could be a brilliant book, but it's a very narrow slice of life. I wanted something more synthetic, a broader scope, and I didn't find it. So, the old adage is you write the book, you want to read yourself. And I thought writing the book <laughs> yeah. would be a good way to do it. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic!
1: Yeah,
0: and so uh, how far back did you go? I mean, how far back does this go in terms of people talking about? I mean, we heard you on a previous podcast. That's where I discovered you. And you had talked about Socrates. I mean, these ancient philosophers were talking about the will and self-control and the problems with you know agency and things like that, right? I mean, this goes back. Anciently, people were troubled with this.
2: Yes, yeah, Socrates is only scratching the surface in terms of how far <laughs> back we can go because. As far as 1000 BC, I found accounts of gambling addiction in Sanskrit hymn, part of Hinduism, called the Rig Veda. There's a beautiful, it's a hymn, it's a poem, where one person describes this really deeply divided struggle with gambling, where at the beginning of the poem, he's lost his wife, he's lost his beloved family, and still he feels this compulsion to go gamble. And it's not that he's totally taken over by it, and he's a mindless zombie. It describes his internal struggle, and that's the thing that makes the hymn so beautiful. And at various points, he has more or less control, and then he feels as if the dice themselves have agency, and they have hooks, and they oh. hook into him. And, and there are other accounts are Chinese ancient sages discussing addiction and, and other folks, but that, that was one of the things that was really instructive, is finding these very clear accounts in history of what I think today most people would call addiction. Yeah. I love that.
0: Well, and I, you know, I know you talked about like your personal motivation for writing this book came out of your own recovery of trying to make sense of your story, your experience, and recognizing that there was this huge hole in the literature about it. But just in a really direct sort of way, like why should people care about the history of addiction? Why should people care about how will this help people in recovery? How will this help people that are trying to support them, clergy, others that are trying to grapple with these
2: issues, therapists? Why should we care about that? Yeah, that was really front of mind because I never stopped seeing patients during the process of writing the book. And that's why I included some stories of my patients and why I included some of my personal story throughout because both for the reader and for myself in the process of writing the book, I wanted to return to the question, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? This thing happened in the 1880s. Who cares? We might or might not understand this or that thing about drug epidemics. How does that actually affect us and affect our behavior? And you know there are a few different specific lessons we can go into depending on how useful it is. But I think the bottom line for me as a person in recovery is it gave me much more of a sense of clarity and groundedness and hope about the phenomenon of addiction. I went into it wondering how to make sense of myself. And still, even in early recovery, not totally sure what it meant to be a person in addiction recovery. And that's life or death. It's life or death because if people are not clear on their intentions regarding use and substances or whatever their addiction is, then that's leaving the door wide open to, you know, mm-hmm. ambivalence and shifting motivations and relapse. So it gave me a lot of hope in the sense that I, I saw how timeless the problem was and really how addiction, I think is part of all of us. It's not some separate and distinct disease that only a few people happen to get. It's part and parcel of the human condition and something that some of those ancient thinkers that you were referring to have struggled with for time immemorial.
1: So maybe we could talk a little bit about what your writing and your research has led you to conclude that addiction actually is.
2: Great. Yeah. So let's start with that point, this notion that addiction exists in all of us. Yes. That's a really important one to me. Because one, one thing I found... In terms of unpacking the cultural baggage and the inertia that I think we all carry is there's been this common tendency throughout all of history to make addiction into an us them problem as if there's some sort of bright line separating healthy from addiction. But I think that's not the case. And that thinking is misleading and it gets us into trouble. And it's actually a relatively modern construction. It's not the way we've always thought about these problems. The mystery at the heart of addiction that people have struggled with across many different cultures and times. Is this why, why why do people keep on using or why do people keep on engaging in the addictive behavior even though they want to stop, even though it hurts me, and even though I set this very clear intention in my head and i 'm not going to do it, I still do the thing and mm-hmm. um, I know you two, because we were talking earlier, come from a Christian background, and so you're probably familiar that this is part and parcel of theology, and this is yeah. what St Augustine was struggling with that was a big it was foundational to Not just Christianity, but all all faith traditions. Why do I do the harmful thing, even though I know in my head and my heart that it's not the right thing? And even though I have this firm intention that I think I don't want to do it. And that's also the same thing that early philosophers struggled with, like Aristotle in particular. I write in the book about his struggles with understanding what he called weakness of the will which is also translated as incontinence, which I think is a really instructive word for it. But it's a phenomenon of doing something even though you truly believe it would be better not to. So even in the moment, Mm -hmm. I recognize I'm acting against my better judgment and I do it anyway. Why do human beings do that? And I think that there's a lot more we could say about that. And you probably have ideas and experience from your own work. But just to identify that that's the question. The question is not like, why do some people get hijacked by some chemical? The question is, why do we all have this human legacy of struggling with the will and self-control? Mm-hmm. Right, so really,
0: instead of defining it as like, like you said, an us versus them or a problem that certain people have, it's really about talking about it almost as like, how are we all relating to this? How are we all connecting to this? This human, this very human struggle that I'm predisposed to, just like the next guy, and mine might show up in this way, and theirs might show up in that way. But it really does, it really does help to sort of level the playing field and keep us all in the same human box, that we're all dealing with this very similar thing. And yes, there are degrees of it in terms of life consequences and impact on others, right? In terms of drunk driving, and death. I mean, there's, there's obviously places it can go, but the day-to-day struggle of it is identical is what I'm hearing.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if there's a difference, it's a difference in degree and not kind. Mm-hmm. I'm far enough out on the spectrum in the sense that I had serious problems with alcohol and it was really life threatening to the point that I wound up being admitted to Bellevue Hospital and New York City Public Hospital in the middle of my medical training. And I struggled enough with it that I'm in abstinence based recovery. I'm not going to mess with it. You know, I just, mm-hmm. that's where I am today. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. need to push that. But, and at the same time, I don't think I'm so fundamentally different from the rest of the population. And that's sort of the paradox. I think at the heart of addiction that many people feel that, you know, maybe I have a sense of fellowship and connection and community with people who have had similar struggles. And at the same time, uh, there can be a tendency, especially in the biomedicalization of it all, to make it into some sort of extreme condition in a way that I think can be misleading and harmful.
1: Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the way you talk about it because I haven't had similar experiences to yours, but I have definitely had my own experiences of making. Deliberate choices that go against what I believe or what I confirm to myself that I'm I'm going to do something different, and I still go mm. against what I want. I believe I want in my mind and heart. So I think that it's very relatable.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know Augustine. Getting back to Augustine of Hippo, he wrote his Confessions, which you could call the first addiction memoir. He describes so clearly these struggles with the will. And self control, and his examples are totally banal. You know, the the key example from Confessions in the earlier part of it is stealing pears. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I knew, I knew in my heart it was a sin, and you know, it's theft, so whatever. But it's still, come on, it's not, <laughs> it's not some of the, the content you see in today's addiction memoirs. But he, he, right. it was, it was the, um, it was the philosophical curiosity about it. He's like, why am I doing this thing? Why am I attracted to the bad? Why am I attracted to the sin? There's something, there's something mystifying there. And, you know, we can talk more about this if it's useful, but I think part of the modern, overly scientific, overly reductionistic take on addiction goes too far when it talks in terms of hijacking. There's a really powerful narrative now that, you know, take, for example, opioid addiction, because we have such a big opioid crisis now. There's a narrative that, you know, the drug has all the power and the drug is like an infectious agent. It comes into your body and it controls you. And drugs are powerful. And they absolutely do have effects. But to put all of the power in the drug, I think, is really misleading and it undermines the human agency and the choice that we do have and our opportunities to change. Mm, Yeah, I think that's super important.
0: And I, I do agree that it's harmful because, you know, you hear terms like, and I know in 12 step communities or clients I've worked with will come in and say, you know, once an addict, always an addict. And there is that narrative that is really centered around it's just a matter of time and I'm just powerless against this thing. And, I have to live my life so careful. No, I I recognize for you in an abstinence-based recovery, you're relating to your addiction to alcohol. You're relating to that compulsion differently because of your own experience. But I don't think you believe, I'm guessing that alcohol is more powerful than you or that, you know, and I don't know what you think of that once an addict, always an addict. I personally, in my own work, my own life with my clients, find it to be I find it to be more hurtful to, to think of it that way because it eliminates the ability to use the will and have choice and to direct your own life and even relate to it or, or think about it or talk about it in this way. It almost keeps it as like the boogeyman in the closet that's just going to jump out and get you someday. And I just don't mm-hmm. think that that's helpful for people trying to heal.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that even just to say the word addict is to make a mistake that from the moment you make it into the noun form, from the moment someone says once an addict, always an addict, You're creating a division. You're saying, "Oh, there are people Mm -hmm. like addicts, and there are people who are not like addicts." And in medicine now, there's a tendency to call it more "person with addiction." Even that you can we can debate about, but just to say that people with addiction are somehow separate and distinct already creates the idea that they're in a separate class and they need to be treated differently. You know, I've seen people who had serious substance use problems and then they recover and then they go back to using. Say, for example, alcohol moderately and they don't have a problem with it. And then I've seen people who have a recovery and they're stable for a while and then they go back to alcohol moderately and then they get into big trouble with it. And I think in 2022, we don't know well enough just who's going to go on what trajectory, but to say categorically, once an addict, always an addict, I think is it lacks humility. It's saying that, you know, I, I know who you are. I know what you're doomed to and. It just mm. flies in the face of what we know from the science. You know, this, the, the scientific research shows us very clearly that there are multiple different pathways to recovery. So for me, I choose to err on yeah. the safe side. You know, I, I say that I'm in addiction recovery, but I hold it loosely. You know, I took a whole book to talk about what that means to me. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, the upshot is, you know, I err on the safe side, but I also don't, I, I don't make it the, the centrality of my identity. And I don't think it determines all my life choices. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the control piece. Yeah, which is if I
0: categorize this or classify this, whether I'm the person that's been injured by someone else's behavior or I'm the person struggling, if I can sort of inject this fear into it that there's this big scary thing that's going to take me over, then I'll rearrange my life or lifestyle choices in a way that keep me so safe. But I feel like there's such a huge element of fear and control that you live with that I think creates a lot of like sometimes high level, but most cases kind of low-grade suffering every single day. In terms of the way you relate to yourself, the way you relate to other people, or even just behaviors and activities and emotions that I don't think is helpful in some cases, I think can lead to wanting to mood alter and needing to escape from that.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the name of the game in one, using one psychological definition for it is psychological flexibility, is the ability to be with suffering as opposed to finding a way to modify it or escape it or control it. One of the Mm -hmm. cliches I like out of mindfulness-based therapy is that control is the problem, not the solution. right? Because
1: Uh, we
2: think that control, oh, if I can get my things just right, or if I can avoid anxiety, or if I can get the things that make me feel good, then I'll be okay. But it's those very efforts to try to control how we feel and how we are that are creating the problem nine times out of ten. And using alcohol or other drugs is no different than that. It's just a, a different type of control that has much more immediate and much more physically dangerous consequences in most cases.
0: Man, that's a challenging thing to put out there, isn't it, for a lot of people that maybe wouldn't oh, yeah. classify themselves as having an addiction. Yeah. But they're mood altering. Yeah. With the control. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there, I mean, there is a bit of freedom in that. There
0: is, totally. So, yeah. so,
1: I mean, it's, it's rough territory. You got to lean into to some hard stuff, but then, but then you're not masking with the illusion of control and on, and living on that hamster wheel, which really yeah. keeps you in, you know, the, I don't remember the words you just said, but avoiding the, the hard feelings, the, mm-hmm. the difficulty.
0: And I think if we're going to move people from crisis to connection, which is obviously our focus in this podcast, you're never really going to get to the connection piece if you believe that you're somehow different than the other person, even if you've been injured by someone's choices or behaviors, right? Like, to see yourself in their struggle as a fellow human, even though you still maybe need to have boundaries or there has to be accountability or or repair, there still is an element of understanding that you can see maybe how they got there because you could get there too. Or maybe you Mm -hmm. struggle with those same things on a different level, but you're not that different. That takes a lot of humility, as you put it, a lot of psychological flexibility. Love the phrase. Mm
2: -hmm. I think so. Yeah. I wanted to ask you actually, because you you mentioned that you had the feeling that sometimes an addiction label impairs that connection, or can it can get in the way of a connection. And you know, I'm wondering what you've seen or what you were thinking of when you mentioned yeah.
0: that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I what I've seen over the years is, and again, most of what I've worked with in my practice professionally has been couples and individuals dealing with some form of sexual betrayal, often compulsive sexuality, oftentimes pornography use and couples come in and are dealing with this this violation of, of values oftentimes tons of secrecy and my in my experience the secrecy and the cover up is way more damaging than the actual behaviors and so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of fear a lot of worry a lot of control a lot of you know there's been manipulation and so this whole thing of classifying then someone as an addiction i think in some ways helps create some accountability either sometimes they feel like if i can name this thing then i can We kind of know what the solution is, and then there's this application of whether it's twelve step principles or counseling or other approaches. I think the label for a lot of people helps them organize the cluster of behaviors and helps them maybe feel like they they can wrap their head around something that feels so overwhelming and big and scary. But what I've seen over the years is that it's really hard for people to know how to escape that label or somehow move into a life where they can relate as equals now or they can feel close to each other and not have this threat hanging in the background that well I'm living with an addict, like I'm living with a pit bull who might bite me, might not bite me. And I think it just creates a lot of fear that just keeps the couple very separate. And at some point, you know, is there ever a day where you could say, Well, you're no longer an addict and now you're my husband or wife and you know, I I've wrestled with this with couples for years about how to bridge that and feel connected, even while there's you know, the threat of betrayal or there's there's ongoing struggles and where that line is. And so that's for me, that's where the question came of like, is it helpful to classify it this way? Is it it useful when talking about this as an addiction or do we have other language that might help bridge more connection?
2: Yeah. No, I think those are really important concerns. And I've even seen people and I've certainly seen people in the, the public dialogue hide behind an addiction label and use it to try to absolve themselves of personal responsibility. I mean, Harvey Weinstein went to a a sex addiction treatment center right after he was accused. It's a it's common thing for people to just say, oh, I was an addict. I couldn't have done any better. It's literally a legal defense. So, I think it depends on how people Mm -hmm. use the label and the concept of addiction. For me, especially because I have a history of addiction, And I have my own recovery. I I try to be very clear with people that my version of recovery is not the end all be all. I don't assume that it maps onto other people's. And I I work very hard to counteract my own biases. So if and when somebody says, I feel like I have an addiction or I identify as a person with addiction, that's only the starting point. I think the question is, what does that mean to you? And for some people, they say I have an addiction. That means I couldn't have done anything differently. That's a big red flag. That's, it's just not functional in the sense of, it's not helpful. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. The question is, what is that belief doing to you? And how can we work for change? How can we work toward your actual valued life goals? How can we bring your actions in line with your values? Whereas other people might say, you know, I have an addiction. That means I need to be careful in this, that, and the other way. And I really need to take personal responsibility. And, you know, for some people who are very firmly in the 12-step tradition, that means I take, you know, a daily inventory and, this is only a daily reprieve, and I have to work at that. I have to work very, very hard, but also work on letting go and seeking divine guidance. You know, there are much more sophisticated ways of looking at addiction too. So I think it's it's nothing but a starting point. It's nothing but just an inquiry into what does this mean to you? How do you think your mind works, and what are your vulnerabilities?
0: Mm, I love that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I love that as a starting point, and and even for a betrayed partner who's been impacted by someone's choices, addictive or otherwise. I think even for them to really look into understanding like, why, why does this label matter to you? Is it protecting you from having to get close to this person? Is it helping you hold them accountable in your own mind so you don't minimize the impact and maybe rescue them? I think it's a starting point for everyone in the conversation when you say.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I, what I've seen in couples is people look to the notion of addiction as a way of finding compassion. It's a way of asking mm. themselves the question. What if this person was doing the very best that they could? But you can ask that question of other people too. You could you don't have to limit it to addiction whether or not you're into the addiction label. So if somebody needs the addiction idea to get to that point, fine. But you cannot whether or not you have addiction, you can ask, what if this person is doing the very best they could have done?
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a fair question for all of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and a and a better question, really. I wonder too, if we can uh Maybe talk a little bit about. Let's see if I can trace my thoughts back because you said uh, you referenced a couple times. This is it that the idea that there are there are several routes to recovery, and so what in your experience and in your your research have you discovered are some maybe some guideposts? Because that I mean that seems very open ended, and I I do think that there's an extremely important element of people being able to discern for themselves what's going to help them like you said get in line with their values and live according to what they believe mm-hmm. but are there some main guidelines there
2: Absolutely and I think it's an important point and I'm I'm grateful you returned to it because in especially in American addiction treatment it can tend to be sort of one size fits all
0: Yeah a yeah. lot of
2: addiction treatment facilities it's the same model for everybody. And if you don't do well after you leave the program, they say you must not have done the program right. And mm. I've gotten a lot out of uh, traditional recovery practices. And I think that uh, on balance, they've done more good than harm. But in the sort of medical industrial complex of today's medicine, it can be kind of limiting. And so it, it was surprising to me because I went to Columbia Med School, graduated with honors, did a research fellowship. I went to Columbia Psychiatry Residency, which is one of the top in the country, and I still did, even I didn't know about the different pathways to recovery and the research on it because that hasn't really been a focus. And so, just knowing mm. that there are different pathways out there, I think, can be really helpful. So, let's talk about a few.
1: Yeah,
2: and um, I, I have uh, some resources on my website about this too. So, I'll just mention briefly that you know people can go great. there if they want to read more. Yes, great. But uh, yeah. there are mutual help groups. And there's more than 12 step out there. Not only are there different types of 12 step groups, there are groups like Smart Recovery for people who want a more explicitly religious orientation. For each major religion, there are uh, religiously oriented ones. One is Celebrate Recovery in a Christian tradition. And then there are some that are more psychologically oriented and they don't even have quite as much about, say, character or values or restitution. And it's m- more about sort of. CBT-style exercises, that would be something like Smart Recovery. But there are other ones there too. Mm. There's traditional treatment, of course, and there's individual therapy, group therapy, and there's a whole diverse range of therapies that a lot of people don't know about because I think the the stereotypical kind of treatment is you go away for rehab. You go away to a 28-day program. But Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the Zoom era, there are many, many more sort of individualized therapeutic options available. So those are two pathways. But the research shows that most people don't use either of those pathways. So people, even people with a severe substance use problem, they tend to recover in other ways. And so how do they do it? Some people, it's primarily through a faith group. And it's not even necessarily through a faith-based mutual help group like Celebrate Recovery. It's just through a faith-based group. For some people, it's finding meaning and purpose and connection through work or even some sort of wholesome recreational activity. And for some people, it's primarily medication based. You know, for some people who have a substance problem, the, some sort of appropriate doctor supervised medication treatment is enough to give them enough of a floor so that they're safe. So then they can pursue these other sort of meaningful activities in their life. And of course these aren't even the word pathways is a little misleading because that implies different pathways going out into the woods when really these are sort of overlapping kind of intersecting. Mm -hmm. Things that might change dynamically across the point of a person's life. But I think the bottom line is for people to recognize that there are many, many different options and sources of support out there. And if you show up and if you keep on trying, then most people find something that works for them.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I love that. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that?
1: Just one additional question Is there, would you say there is close to always a community element that contributes to that?
2: Yeah, I would be inclined to say that. I think that a lot of, we tend to overlook the role of dislocation, alienation, and lack of community and loss of community in the formation of addiction. That tends to be obscured, mm-hmm. you know, in this whole sort of like epidemic narrative as if it's a drug doing all the work. We miss the fact that more people are living alone than ever before. People are not as connected to their families as in the past. There's much lower rates of religious attendance and other attendance. This, you know, this was chronicled in the case in Deaton book, Deaths of Despair, which made a big splash a few years ago, but it goes back to bowling alone and others that just chronicles, and yeah. especially American yeah. life, that there's, there's a sort of fracturing of forms of connection. And so if that's part of the root of it, then people absolutely need to find ways of getting that misconnection. In other words, if the addictive behavior is covering up for, Loneliness or meaninglessness—you know—just stopping is not enough. It's just not enough. Mm. And
0: it seems like a lot of, in my experience, in working with people over the years, is that a lot of the solutions to what their particular recovery is going to look at is really starting to get curious about again the etiology of their addiction, why it showed up. Sometimes is rooted in a big T trauma. Sometimes little T trauma. You know, developmental or kind of contextual types things. It could be other co-occurring mental health issues or There's so many things that could be pressing on someone to need that they need to escape from or they need to feel differently about. And I think a lot of the times the fear that at least with the couples that I work with in a couple's context is that it'll feel like excuses or it'll feel like blame and oftentimes even blaming the the injured partner. Mm -hmm. But I think that in that exploration and that curiosity, which sometimes is easier to do as a clinician individually with someone versus in a couple's context, some couples can tolerate that. But in my experience... There are so many answers to what their recovery is going to look like and what's going to ultimately help them if we can take the time and, and get curious about that and have the person get curious about that instead of just telling them to stop and mm-hmm. even shaming them for not being able to stop. Have you found that to be the case as well Is that? Their, their own story really, in some ways, designs their own healing, their recovery.
2: Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, Gabor Mate famously says, mm. don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. And I think that's a really interesting question Uh, because if we look at addiction, not as some sort of endpoint, but as the expression of process, meaning Mm -hmm. people use drugs for reasons, people engage in addictive behaviors for reasons, the behavior is always doing something for them. And generally it's to do good, to do better, to feel good, or to fit in. (laughs) Those are the the four Mm -hmm. things, you know? So, you know, if you're feeling bad, it helps you to feel a little better. Or if you're feeling kind of neutral, but you are lacking a sense of joy or awe or engagement or flow, it can kind of give you a, a false refuge. It mm-hmm. can give you a sort of false experience of that. And I say false, not that it's not that it's necessarily bad to use substances, but, you know, if someone is craving a thing and the only way they can access it is substances or other addictive behaviors, and that is a problem. And then there's also the performance enhancement side of it. You know, sometimes that's the only way people know how to manage anxiety and they haven't been taught other distress tolerance skills. For example, yeah, and then to, you know probably less so in your work when we were talking about boundary violations, porn, sexual behaviors, but like fitting in, yeah, I guess you could even say that you know we, we get a lot of bad messages about sex and porn from a younger and younger age, and uh, that could that could be part of it as well.
0: Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and I think I think a lot of I mean a lot of people that struggle with sexual compulsivity, in my experience, don't feel like they fit in. They oftentimes will. I think so much of the draw of that is, is a false intimacy, is a false connection that leaves them feeling more vacant. But I want to go back to this question of what being in recovery is. And Jody, you were asking about like, what are some of the guideposts? A phrase I hear a lot again, and I, I have tremendous compassion for anyone who's been betrayed by someone else's choices. It's, it's terribly painful. And I would never be critical or judge any of them for the way they responded. They have their own trauma they have to confront. But, but a phrase I hear a lot is, and I get asked, like, you know, is my husband even in recovery? He's not in recovery. He's not in recovery. And it's very much like my idea of recovery or, what, I, or what, what I've read online or what I believe recovery is. And, you know, what I've believed and what I hear you saying is that we have to be a lot more nuanced about this and a lot more flexible and open about really discovering what recovery not only is going to look like for this person, but even what's possible and just be more creative and open-minded about how to get to, and even what is what would recovering even look like? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions that that very loaded term brings up for me. Yeah. This one, I have a simple
2: answer for. (laughs) Unlike a lot of these topics, (laughs) I think it's a, for me, recovery is a self-chosen identity that has component of any positive change, period, Mm -hmm. because it's so Mm -hmm. diverse. When a couple, I've seen this too, Jeff, that People start kind of gatekeeping around what is in recovery. You're not in recovery. You said you'd be in yeah. recovery. No, you're
1: mm-hmm.
2: not. I think that's a, usually something different. That's not about recovery. That's about boundaries and rules. People, for you know, sure. They, it will help me if I see you going to five mutual help meetings a week, if that's something we've decided you're going to do. You know, that's something within the relationship and that's an understanding about safety between the dyad. That's not about recovery. There are people who have very strong recovery that only go to one. Meeting a week or zero meetings because they they're not in a, a sort of mutual help oriented recovery. It's becoming even more common in substance use recovery that people say rather than saying, you know, I've been in recovery for blah blah. They they say they make it more. I, I have twelve years in recovery rather than twelve years sober. If you know what I mean, I, I sort of garbled yeah. that when I said it, but in other words, yeah, yeah. they they define their recovery. Either time in recovery rather than some sort of scorecard for how long it's been since the last substance or behavior, and the reason for that is you know while we always want to avoid lapses or relapses or slips, it happens, and mm-hmm. to have an attitude that you know you're you're either thumbs up or thumbs down can it can actually promote negative behaviors this is this abstinence violation effect where if you if you have the notion that it's so dangerous to get into a lapse or a relapse, and then you do it, you say. All bets are off. Might as well. Yeah. Versus,
0: I'm committed to a process. I'm committed to a a way of living and a way of thinking that, and I can slide back into that as easy as I slid back into this. Like I'm just gonna, right? I'm Mm -hmm. just gonna. I've hit the rumble strips, and I don't need to, or I went in the ditch, but I can put it back on the road. Yes. And I agree. I think that a lot of, I think that's a very helpful way to look at it. And I, I try and teach that with my couples and work with them and encourage them to trust more. The fact that this person's in a process and in a recovery journey instead of, and I get that people have to have limits and boundaries and some things, you know, you have, everybody has to self-determine what they can tolerate in a relationship. But in my experience, just observing the couples I've worked with over the years, a lot of betrayed partners are willing to stay in it and keep working with someone who's in a process and committed to a process and a, and a, a recovery journey versus somebody who just is so focused on abstinence that they end up going secretive and hiding that. And then end up manipulating their partner for five years. I mean, that seems mm-hmm. to be almost more intolerable than mm-hmm. staying open with the struggle.
2: Yes. No, it makes good sense. Or mm-hmm. you know, maybe they are able to achieve abstinence in that one domain, but then it slips into something else: exercise, mm-hmm. power, money, always, or <laughs> food, whatever.
0: Food, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like- mm-hmm.
1: yeah,
2: exactly. And, and then then it just reveals the
0: kind of the deeper work you have to do to just stay in balance. And-
1: mm-hmm. So we're talking about just more compassionate and expansive ways to see both addiction and recovery. And I'm curious if in your research, you discovered cultures, communities that had a good sense of how to support this kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I'll say there are different historical epochs where I think people were more humble in the overall category or the overall approach to the notion of addiction was a bit more, let's say like pragmatic, okay. flexible, multi-leveled. Mm-hmm. You know, There's a really interesting movement in the later stages of the first round of the temperance movement in the 19th century in the United States, where sort of the first generation, 1820s, 1830s was like wagging a finger in your face and saying, no, 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 you shouldn't drink. And then they found that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were these really interesting almost like precursors to AA, there are these things called the Washingtonian groups, where people got together and self-associated at a time when American drinking was truly out of control. And they had not just meetings, but also clubs and parades and fun activities. And it was a very big tent. It wasn't just people who had suffered from drinking problems, although the people with the drinking problems are the core of the issue. And then you know there are similar times of sort of like integrative, flexible components and 1870s, 1880s. You could say something about the 1960s, although there was also a lot of rancor then too. Mm. And I think today we're approaching a moment where people are so frustrated by so many different strands, so frustrated by the ongoing crisis of the opioid epidemic. People have a sense that there is a real problem with the way that we relate to technology in a lot of ways.
1: Mm.
2: That Alcohol is a much bigger problem than most people appreciated that, you know, I'm not some prohibitionist, but uh, the alcohol industries are tremendously powerful and a lot of people are really harmed by alcohol. And the notion that addiction is some separate thing, like, oh, it's only the worst people over here who have a problem with alcohol actually serves those corporate interests. Anyway, it's mm-hmm. a whole other topic. A lot. <laughs> but yeah, the, a the point one. is, I'm like <laughs> I think there's yeah. so many different, I think, strands converging right now that people are a little hungrier- for that Mm. sort of multi-level integrative understanding of addiction. They have the sense that the usual simplistic answers are not serving us and we need, you know, it's not fun and it's hard to wrap our arms around a complex multi-level problem, but we just need to, we have no other option. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think there is some receptivity to that these days. I love that. And I I love your work for that reason, because Mm -hmm.
0: even just talking about historically, how people have grappled with it, even just hearing this example of the the temperance moving and so on. You know, it just helps me feel like I'm just not so alone. Yeah, that like sure. we're all just humans on this earth trying to figure out how to deal with bodies and, and context and, you know, just all kinds of things going on and the way we've tried to reel things in and try different approaches. And I think it does expand our ability to think about this more creatively and how to help people and, and be more connected to each other while we're doing it instead of, like you said, creating divisions or isolating both on the on the personal suffering level of trying to overcome something and also just the support role or family member, I think it opens up way more possibilities. So I think your work is really important for that reason. Cause I don't know that, you know, like you said, even inside of subcultures, right? Inside of our church culture or family cultures or communities, we can get very narrow in terms of how we define and interpret what this is and what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to look. And I think that creates a lot of pressure and a lot of, I think it traps people into, even lifestyles that that they feel ashamed of. And oh my goodness, I just think that there's just has to be a bigger conversation about why we're doing what we're doing, what informs our thinking, what other people have tried. Mm-hmm. And I think your work is great for
2: that. Thanks so much for saying so. I, you know, I felt in myself, I felt that the history really was a good teacher. A historian yeah. yes. friend of mine says, history is the memory banks of the human species. And mm-hmm. we forget a lot. Humans are fallible and (laughs) there are a lot of lessons there that have been hiding in plain sight for a long time.
1: Yeah.
0: So do you have another question? No, no. So one thing I guess I want to, I know we need to wrap up here soon. I want to understand for you, like in your research of looking at this again, historically and and just in your own personal journey as as a psychiatrist, where do you put the balance or what is that balance between individual responsibility environmental impact, biology, cultural, family dynamics, and so on when trying to confront or deal with an individual's addictive behaviors or even trying to help them as a supporter, where where is that balance? How do you talk about it? How do you help somebody make movement without excuses, without minimizing, but also incorporating all this stuff?
2: I think the only thing I can say about that honestly is that it has to be individualized, that some people need more push. And some people need more compassion. And I love that. It it takes wisdom and discernment and meeting someone as a human being to make that determination to say in general, people need to be more on the side of individual responsibility or in general, people need to be more on the side of letting go and acceptance and compassion. I don't know. There's always that dialectic. There's always Mm -hmm. that dialectic between action and acceptance, between effort and letting go. And uh, most people need some guidance somewhere along that spectrum. but uh, yeah, at different points in their own journey as well. You know, Yes, exactly. Like Again, just like the many pathways to recovery, I think it's dynamic yeah. over someone's life course. They might be too hard driving in the beginning and then they need to work on acceptance. And that's not even a problem or a recalibration. It's just a natural stage in their development. Sure. Beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. Right. And I, I remember
0: when I was listening to you on the Man Talks podcast, which is where I discovered you, you and Connor were talking about that like an intervention, for example, sometimes makes a lot of sense, and sometimes it's super harmful. <laughs> yes. And like in your case, an intervention made a lot of sense for, for where you were. It was life and death, and for other people, it's it's too much too soon. It could really do a lot of damage.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are different kinds of interventions, and right interventions can be done in a helpful way and a harmful way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow.
2: This is expansive. I don't have a mm-hmm. word for it. I just really love
0: mm-hmm. love your your work and your emphasis and what you, what you've done and what you're doing. And I really I really hope our audience can hear how important it is to really not be afraid to look at this in a more curious and open way and not as a way of making excuses or giving people free passes. None of us get that, but as a way to actually like you said have some movement and some traction and, and create better balance. So we definitely want people to read and discover your fantastic books. Your agenda. We'll put links to everything you've Mm -hmm. you've got in our show notes and make that accessible to our audience.
1: And your website. Yep. Yeah. We'll direct everybody over to you.
0: Anything else you'd like to just as we wrap up here, anything else you'd like to emphasize with our audience? I know that we've covered a lot of ground here, but we'd love to hear any closing thoughts you might have.
2: Yeah, I'll just say briefly that I I like the way that you describe these problems as a process. I think process is a good word. And Mm -hmm. one of my takeaways, both at the individual and the social level, is that addiction is not a problem to solve. It's not a thing to end. That we won't see the end of addiction in the sense that we'll be able to stamp it out or eradicate it. And I think whatever individual human tendencies we have toward problems with self-control or the will or however you want to classify it, they're not things to just crush or eradicate. Mm -hmm. But if we can find ways of working with our suffering and find the change within the acceptance. That's a much more humane and compassionate way to treat the problem, both for ourselves and for others. Mm. That's gentle. I love that. That is really, really compassionate. Thank you.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's been a really stimulating discussion and it's been great to meet you both.
0: Likewise. Yeah, We,
2: we love your work and thanks for making
0: time for all of us.
2: Of course, yeah.
0: You can learn more about Dr. Carl Eric Fisher and the great work that he's doing on his website, carleericfisher.com and just as a quick note his name is spelled a little bit differently it's carl c a r l e r i k fisher.com and we'll put a link to that in the show notes and of course we encourage you to check out his book The Urge Our History of Addiction which is a fascinating read and named as one of the best books of the year by the New Yorker and Boston Globe so definitely check that out and we want to thank Dr. Carl Eric Fisher for joining us on the podcast and imparting his personal and professional wisdom and experiences. It's just a great opportunity to connect with him and just love the work that he's doing. And of course, we just love connecting with all of you. Thank you so much for being here every single week. We'd love to remind you that if you want to download a free course on rebuilding trust, you can click on the link in the show notes and we'll send that to you right away. We want to provide as many resources as we can to help guide you along the very complicated journey of rebuilding trust and restoring connection in your most important relationships. Once again, thank you so much for being here, and we'll catch you in the next episode.